Scream to Reality Entertainment presents the Think Tank Podcast. Starring your host, he's a podcaster, photographer, filmographer, writer, conspiracy fascist, entrepreneur, explorer, color commentator, picky eater, beer ninja, secret agent, and the world's most influential humanoid, he is Ryan the Area Man. And now, coming to you pre-recorded from the very secretive D2R Studios, deep undercover in the world's deepest, darkest, most secure, Hadron Collider and Nuclear Bomb Tested and Approved Doomsday Bunker, here is Ryan the Area Man! I'm Ryan the Area Man, this is the Think Tank Podcast. I got my buddy Dave helping me do this intro today. Hello, Ryan. And in studio, we have a, uh, a, uh, Professor Emeritus. Yeah, you've been wanting to get this guy on here forever. I have. And when I originally started the think tank, this was like a guy I'm I'm like, he's the goal. We'll eventually uh, reach out to him, but I kind of wanted to get it set. Like, this is a thing. It's not like a five podcast and we're done type deal. Right. So we're getting close to 100 with these think tanks. So I finally said, let me reach out to him and see, because it may take some time to to get him. So I thought, oh, we might get him by 100. I literally emailed him, and 20 minutes later, he writes back, and he's like, yes, let's do this. I'll, I'll come yeah. in. And before I could even respond to that, he emailed me again and said, when do you want to do this? And I was like, I gave him a date, and he's like, how about we do two weeks sooner than that? And I was like, whoa. Yeah, that's super cool, man. He really so, wanted to get down here. And he came, and, and that was the other thing. I said, uh, we could do, like, because most of the interviews he does, he does Skype or something like that. Yeah. And I said, we could do Skype, but I'd really prefer if you came in studio. And he said, perfect, I'll be there. Yeah, that's And cool. I was like, whoa, this guy's coming. So he wrote a handful of books. Yeah. Two of which were banned on Amazon. Yeah. Which is pretty badass to ha- be able to say, yeah, I've written a book, and it's been banned. He yeah. can say that on two books, though. Yeah, I uh, when I talk, because I've told people that I was going to do this interview at work, and they asked how it went, and so I talked about it, and they're like, and that's my selling point. Like, yeah, this guy's got like two books banned from Amazon. Like that's crazy. Yeah, you know. Um, and then I start talking about the books. Like, well, yeah, no wonder why. How could they? How could you say the one died at Sandy Hook? And I'm like, dude, well, let's go to the website. Well, listen to my. And I told it like ten people. As soon as this website, this episode comes out, I'm tagging you in it because you gotta listen. You gotta mm-hmm. open your eyes and actually understand this shit. Yeah. And that's actually not in this episode. No, I know. Specific. It'll be in the follow-up next week. So we did. We broke it up into two. Right. Um, we recorded two episodes this week and next week. Today's episode, specifically, we're talking about uh, JFK. And uh, what was the other thing we talked about towards the end? Uh, um, I, I got the two of them confused. Oh, was man. it the Holocaust? Mm, yeah, we briefly touched the Holocaust. Let me look it up, just so we get it right. Oh, 9-11. Ah, uh, yes. So JFK 9-11, and we briefly touched on the Holocaust. Oh, no, I think that was in the second one. See, I can't remember. Point is, we did two episodes. Here's the, here's the thing, and this is what's so crazy, is all this stuff is in his head. Yeah. So, like, when we ask him a question, he'll answer, and he's not, like, reading notes. He's just firing off 
fact after fact after fact yeah. after fact, and it's it's hard to remember because well, there, there was so much. Well, 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 two, we intended to ask a whole bunch of questions yep. of all these different topics, and he he goes on and on about the JFK thing, like all this stuff that we were like, like he basically answered all our questions without us having to ask. But mm-hmm. it's literally you're gonna have to re-listen to this episode. Yeah, you're Probably multiple to times to get it all because pause it and take notes. It's it's, it's crazy. tons of information and, and even more convinced that Lee Harvey Oswald had pretty much nothing to do with yeah. JFK's assassination. Other than the fact that he actually watched the assassination, he had nothing to do with it. Yeah, yeah. Dave, you said something interesting there. He watched it, and yeah. Jim Besser can prove it. Yeah, that's uh, the coolest thing too. Yeah, scientific forensic evidence. It's that's nuts because yeah. you've never heard that. And like you're never going to no, except for Jim when Jim talks yeah. about it, you know. And we talk about nine eleven, and uh, yeah. So real quick, let's do some sponsor stuff here, and then we'll get into the episode. Uh, everybody does shopping online. Mm-hmm. You can get some of his books by going to thearyman.com, clicking the sponsor tab, and that takes you to Amazon. It's kind of weird because we're Amazon's. Uh, sponsor, yet he's banned from Amazon for two of his books. So you can basically go there, do the com, click the sponsor tab, takes you to Amazon, um, search his name, James Fetzer or Jim Fetzer. Uh, he's got tons of books because um, mm-hmm. he was a professor, so he's gotten uh, he's got other books on philosophy and uh, all this. Um, handful of ones we had. You have a couple sitting there, Dave. What ones yeah. do you have that you got from Amazon. Uh, from Amazon. By clicking the banner. Yeah, I got. And nobody died in Boston either. Mm-hmm. Talks about Boston Marathon and bombing. And then one of the one of the JFK books he's got. He's got a lot of JFK books. But this one is the Great Zapruder Film Hoax: Deceit and Deception in the Death of JFK. That's awesome. Yeah, and, and two others should be coming up pretty quick here too. So yeah. I'm excited. He's got one coming out very soon, which is very topical to this episode. It's yeah. called JFK: Who, How, and Why. Uh, by the time you're hearing this, I would assume it should be out. It should be out uh, mm-hmm. or pretty close here. But I think you can pre-order it either way, now and you website. can go to uh, moonrockbooks.com to pre-order those. Also on that website, real quick, was this promo. He's got JFK, Who, How, and Why, which is coming out. American nuked on 9/11, which you can get. Nobody died at Sandy Hook. That's one that's banned on Amazon. That's the original one that was banned yep, on Amazon. The very first one, um, and nobody died in Boston either, which Dave, you have. I also have that. Uh, and I suppose we didn't go to the moon either. That one's also banned mm-hmm. on Amazon. That's the most recent. That was just banned in March. March or this year. This year, yeah. Uh, then he's got From Orlando to Dallas and Beyond uh, on there. And then White Rose Blooms in Wisconsin. So those are the books on Moonrock Books. If you go to Amazon or through the Area Man and sponsorship to Amazon, just search his name. You can. He's got a lot of other books, Assassination Science, um, a handful of them. Um, I think I've I've got some of them, the ones that seem pertinent to need to do the interview. Right. Um, but he's got a lot of books. Just go check all that out. The other sponsor, Dave, is your company, PhoenixBeardOils.com. Yes. So if you go there, what will you find? Uh, lots of beard oils, uh, all the different scents that we have, what the ingredients are in them, the benefit properties of using Phoenix beard oils uh, or beard oils in general. Uh, and then also I'm really big into the aromatherapy properties of it. So I break down what essential oils are on it uh, or in it and what the aromatherapy can do for you in that specific scent. Sweet. Which is unique to me as far as I know. I have not seen any other beard oil right. company. I agree. And it's really cool. You've hooked me up. I've made one. 
Eric from the Beer Friends Podcast has made one, and the rest you made. Yep. Right? Yep. Uh, only one I have not made on my own. Joy made her own. Ah, yeah, yeah, Joy. Uh, and that is one of my favorites, actually. That's pretty much the number one seller, I think. It's oh. it's a tie. It's, it's a toss-up. It's really close between Joy and Author, and Author is my very first one. Yeah. So That's cool. Yeah. Does Joy get royalties? Yes. Well, in a way, she technically yes. does, because you guys live together. Yeah. So... Profits are probably. Uh, anyways, yeah, we haven't turned a profit yet. No, <laughs> well, but you're you're selling at yeah. farmers markets and uh, online, online and, and in person and that. stuff. Yeah, but what you can do as a listener of this podcast is you can go to phoenixbeardoils.com, look at all that stuff, see what Dave was just telling you about. There's more details on the website, and then uh, when you decide on something or everything, or if you want to do what the sampler pack, sampler pack, yeah. you can get pretty much. Uh, what, 12 different samples yeah, 12 in the sampler samples. back. Yep. Uh, you enter the promo code D2R during checkout, and you're going to get 10% off the entire order. Correct. It's pretty awesome. I've got more than 12 cents, so if, if there's something particular you want, when you order the sampler, put that in the comment section yeah. so I know. Otherwise, I'll give you the first 12 that I do. Yeah. Or if there's seasonal, I usually throw seasonal ones in there as well. Yeah. You can't beat it. You can't. So, let's get into this episode with Jim Fetzer. Uh, super excited to have him in the studio, and uh, yeah, I guess take it away. Here we are. A guest I've been trying to get on, or not trying to, I guess I've wanted to get on yeah. since starting this podcast. Um, real quick, I'm Ryan. Dave. Uh, got Dave here. Yep. Jim Fetzer, finally, you're here in studio. How exciting. Welcome. Glad to be here, Ryan, and with you too, Dave. Hey, nice to meet you. Thanks for coming in. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, <laughs> where to start? Let's, yeah, <laughs> where to start, because there's so much. Um, I think let's start with um, a little bit of your your bio, um, your history. You were in the you were in the military. You were a professor, University of Minnesota. What else? Well, I was commissioned in the Marine Corps upon graduation from Princeton, where I majored in philosophy. Unbeknownst to me at the time, Princeton was number one in the world in math, physics, and philosophy. I uh, served four years as a commissioned officer, including 13 months in the Far East. I was anchored out in Kaohsiung Harbor aboard the USS Iwo Jima, which is an LPH landing platform helicopter, meaning it doesn't need a deep keel like the planes for fixed-wing aircraft. So it kind of bobbles around like a bathtub in the water. (laughs) And the executive officer of the mortar battery, of which I was a fire direction officer, awakened me at 3.30 in the morning to tell me that the president had been shot. 
and then an hour later, an hour later that they caught the fellow done it, and he was a communist. I thought, then that was pretty fast work today. Of course, I know why. <laughs> yeah. Then I came back to the U.S. and served as a series commander at the recruit depot in San Diego, where I had 15 DIs and 300 recruits under my command. In the second year I was there, they moved me up to regimental headquarters to revise the training curriculum from one in which we could train 8,000 recruits in 11 weeks to 11,000 in eight weeks using the same facilities. I resigned my commission as a captain to enter graduate school, earned a Ph.D. in the history and the philosophy of science at Indiana University, and began a career at a series of universities. I stepped on a lot of toes at Kentucky, <laughs> and they decided that uh, they wanted somebody different. <laughs> <laughs> which I'm sure they managed to do, taught at Virginia twice, which was actually the best public university in the country. So they, they promoted me to visiting associate, which uh, Kentucky had declined. Uh, <laughs> Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Chapel Hill, University of Cincinnati, two years a second on an NSF, National Science Foundation Fellowship, where I wrote my first book and... New College, the University of Southwest. I wound up doing a year studying computer science, artificial intelligence at Wright State University in Dayton, Ohio, when I was hired as full professor with tenure on the Duluth campus of the University of Minnesota in 1987. Ten years later, the university would introduce a new rank for distinguished full professors called the Distinguished McKnight University Professor, and I was among the first ten selected. Since my retirement in 2006, I've been devoting myself to exposing the complicity of government and the lies in, in major crimes, uh, JFK, the first, of course, uh, then 9-11, Wellstone, uh, since uh, Sandy Hook, the Boston bombing, Orlando, Dallas, and moon landings, a host of issues, because I believe the American people are entitled to know the truth about their own history. I agree. So you started in 2006 doing that? You've been researching it a lot longer than that. Well, I got serious. When I returned from the Far East, I began looking into work on JFK. Okay. And uh, it was, actually, I probably learned more from a book by David Lifton, Best Evidence, published initially in 1980, than I did from any other when I became serious in 1992, after being completely appalled by the performance of the then editor-in-chief of the Journal of the American Medical Association, a fellow named George Lundberg. Well, I was just lying in bed, reading the paper, drinking a cup of coffee, when my wife came in, turned on the TV, and said, you're not going to believe this. And here was this distinguished-looking guy standing behind a lectern with the logo of the AMA, attacking everyone who'd ever done serious research on JFK, including, of course, Oliver Stone's film, mm-hmm. which is a masterpiece. I mean, it's the most accurate, uh, complete, and comprehensive presentation of what actually happened in Dealey Plaza ever presented to the public through the mass media. And it seemed to me if this guy was going to abuse his position in such a way, perhaps some of us with special background and abilities ought to become involved. I started following up with uh, JAMA, the Journal of the AMA, and found a letter from a fellow named David W. Mantic, who has both an MD in physics, uh, MD, uh, and a PhD in physics and an M- from Wisconsin, an MD from Michigan. He's board certified in radiation oncology, which is a treatment of cancer using x-ray therapy. And I reached out to David and suggested we write a long article, a short book, 
and he, he suggested we bring in a couple of others who contacted me, and we put together a research group that turned out to be the best qualified individuals ever study the assassination. And David immediately, this was in late 1992, immediately discovered that the autopsy x-rays had been altered to conceal a fist-sized blow at the back of the head and other by adding a 6.5 metallic slice to the anterior-posterior x-ray to implicate this obscure World War II Carbine, the Manlicker Carcano, known as a humanitarian rifle in World War II for never harming anyone on purpose. A world authority on the human brain, Bob Livingston, is also an expert on wound ballistics, having supervised an emergency medical hospital during the Battle of Okinawa for injured Okinawas and Japanese prisoners of war, who determined by comparing the reports from the physicians at Parkland, one after another after another, describing cerebellar as well as cerebral tissue extruding from this blowout at the back of the head. Well, the diagram and photographs of the brain in the National Archives shows a completely intact cerebellum. In fact, it's a virtually completely intact brain, which clearly could not have been that of JFK, since he had half his brains blown out in Dealey Plaza, Mm -hmm. which led Bob to conclude that these diagrams and photographs cannot possibly be those of John F. Kennedy, which is... Something I could have said, but it's nice to come from a world authority on the human brain. Mm -hmm. He founded the first department of neuroscience in the world at the University of California, San Diego, for example. He was a scientific director of national two of the institutes for health at the National Institutes of of Health located across the street from Bethesda. There's a lot more about Bob that's equally fascinating. Chuck Crenshaw, who was one of the physicians in Trauma Room 1 when JFK's moribund body was brought in, and then two days later was responsible for the treatment of his alleged assassin, Lee Oswald, also became a part of our group. And uh, uh, Jack White, a legendary photo and film analyst, uh, eventually John P. Costello, another Ph.D., this time with a specialty in electromagnetism, the properties of light and of images of moving objects, who did spectacular work on the internal features of the Zapruder film, which you can find, for example, at my website, assassinationscience.com, and also at assassinationresearch.com, which John and I co-edit as a journal for advanced study of the death of JFK. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's, it's, why do you, I don't even know where to begin. Where, why do you think they, what will what was the Lee Harvey Oswald thing? Why why go that route with it? Rather than, who was behind it, I guess? Cause it, well, to understand the assassination, you got to draw a distinction between the sponsors, the facilitators, and the mechanics. The mechanics are the shooters on the ground. Right. They're supervisors and coordinators, which is some pretty startling stuff all by itself. I've identified who I take to be six of the shooters, the shots they fired, the effects they had. Some misses, some hits. JFK would wind up being hit at least four times. So you think uh, there, was, there was six shooters? Yeah, maybe a seventh, I conjecture. And David, although Jack was hit twice in the head, David now believes he may even have been hit a third time in the head. Wow. Uh, and they were located all around Dealey Plaza, which was just an ideal situation for an so amb- it was ambush. Yeah, one of them was on top of the county records building. Appears to have been a Dallas deputy sheriff by the name of Harry Weatherford, who was a crack shot, obtained a new silencer custom made just uh, about ten days before the assassination. That's convenient. He was he he was imparting a Manlicker Carcano bullet, which is a smaller caliber than the .30-06 he was using with a plastic collar called a sabot. 
just to implicate the weapon that actually was being fired from the Dow Techs. No shots were fired from the sixth floor alleged assassins mm -hmm. lair. That, that was the first hit on Jack's back. Five and a half inches below the collar to the right of the spinal column. Shallow shot only went about as far as the second knuckle on your little finger. Then he was hit in the throat by a shot that was fired from inside the triple underpass. Mm -hmm. On the left side, if you're facing from the back of the limousine that passed through the windshield, hit Jack in the throat. Where a student of JFK has been going through junkyards in the south and firing high-caliber weapons through the windshield and discovered that it makes the sound of a firecracker when it passes through and also a small, white, round spiral nebula. You can actually see it in this very famous photograph taken by James Ike Alchins, AP photographer, where... Jack's already clutching his throat. Uh, the Secret Service agents are looking around as though they have no idea what's going on. There, there are figures in the doorway to whom I will return. You can actually see the, the window of the Dow text from which three shots were fired using a man liquor carcano, the only unsilenced weapon by an anti-Castro Cuban by the name of Nestor. Tony Escadro, who was, believe it or not, supervised by George Herbert Walker that Bush. Is, I was just going to ask you about Yeah, that. the shooter in the in the triple underpass who fired the shot the bastard of the windshield was an Air Force expert by the name of Jack Lawrence, who'd gone to work for the automobile dealership that provided the vehicles for the motorcade, which was a sure sign that this was not standard operating procedure. They were different makes, different models, different color so that the conspirators could know who was where in each limousine. And the president was put out first, which is completely absurd. He should have been in the middle, preceded by the mayor and then the vice president, working way up to Jack and Jackie. Otherwise, everyone sees them. They're thrilled, and they walk away. No one even sticks around for the mayor, for example. Mm -hmm. He also altered, altered the motorcycle. Escort cut it down to three, directed them not to ride ahead of the rear wheels, which one of the officers said was the damnedest formation he'd ever encountered. Two agents were left behind at Love Field. These guys would have been on the limo or running beside it. So taking away, you know, stripping down his security was a key element. Oh, the windows were not covered. Uh, the manhole covers weren't welded shut. The crowd was allowed to spill into the street. The 110th Military Intelligence Unit, which normally would have been distributed through the city for crown control, was ordered to stand down over the adamant opposition of its commanding officer. We have one photograph where the presidential limousine is beside a bus, and the crowd is just spilling out. They must be 20 deep. Anyone with a handgun could have shot the man there. I mean, they mm -hmm. talk about a total absence of security. They changed the motorcade route four days before, which is completely wrong. They always set it, keep it fixed, because they got to inspect all the buildings, who's going to be there, secure the windows, none of which was done in this case. And then after a turn from Maine on to Houston, a 110-degree turn again in violation of Secret Service protocol. Mm -hmm. Never supposed to take more than a 90-degree turn, but this appears to have been arranged as slow down the motorcade without alarming the occupants. And it turns out the driver, William Greer, swung out too widely. He seems to have mistaken a frontage road right in front of the book depository for Elm and nearly hit a concrete abutment, as Roy Truly, for example, who's Oswald supervisor in the book depository, reported. Then after bullets began to be fired, after Jack had already been hit twice by that shot in the back and the, and the shot in the throat, Greer pulled the limousine to the left and to a halt to make sure JFK would be killed. And that's the part that's taken out of the Zapruder film, right? Yes. What they did was, here's the deal. Uh, during this limo stop, he was hit in the back of the head by a shot from the Daltex. The other two missed. One hit a distant uh, curbing and injured a distant bystander. The other missed and hit the chrome strip over the 
windshield. Jack slumped forward. Jack eased him back up and was looking him right in the face when he was hit in the right temple by a frangible or exploding bullet. Uh, that set up shock waves that blew his brains out the back of his already weakened cranium with so much force that when they impacted motorcycle patrolman Bobby Har- Hargis riding there initially thought he himself had been shot. Now, we know now what we did not know before because of Larry Rivera's rediscovery of the Fred Newcomb interviews with the four motorcycle patrolmen and their escort, Stavis Ellis that they all confirmed the limo stop. Not only that, but it turns out Bobby Hargis parked his bike, got off the bike, ran between the limousines up to the grassy knoll from which he believed the shot had been fired. Officer Douglas Jackson on the right actually motored his bike up the grassy knoll until it fell over, and then he proceeded on foot. We even have now photographs where you can see the bicycle marks up the side of the grassy knoll. And we have photographs for Hargis coming back to get back on his bike, which is an important tell because it shows us right where the limousine had stopped at the time. Plus, five agents dismounted the Queen Mary, as they called it, the Secret Service Cadillac, and surrounded the presidential, one of whom took a, a chunk of skull from a little boy and threw it in the back seat. Meanwhile, Clint Hill, of course, had rushed up, was pushing Jackie back and laying across her bodies where he was the first to observe this fist-sized gaping wound in the back of the head and turned and gave his colleagues a thumbs down. All that taken out. What they did when they revised the film was to merge the two headshots. So you only actually have one frame from 312 to 313 where it is moving forward. And then the back and to the left motion that you see there is from excising too many frames. He actually simply slumped to the left, but they took out so many frames it looks like a violent back and to the left. They were stuck with it because that's how it was revised at the time at a secret CIA lab located adjacent to Kodak headquarters in Rochester, New York. So that the substitution occurred when the original in, in, in eight millimeter already split film developed in Dallas was taken to the National Photographic Interpretation Center in Washington D.C. on Saturday the 23rd. They had to actually have a shop owner open his store so they could buy an eight millimeter projector in order to view it. But then Sunday, with a different crew working, they brought the 16 millimeter unsplit film developed in Rochester to the NPIC and made the substitution. That's so crazy. There was actually a second limo stop, I mean, apart from the hesitation when he swung out too widely, where they took out a whole series of, of frames. Um, it's in, officially, the camera was running at 18.3 uh, frames per second. So, I mean, if that took several seconds, you could have a 100 frames missing there. And it's obvious in the extant film because you see the motorcade start to turn, and then boom, all of a sudden the limos of the Stemmons Freeway sign. Costello discovered, among other things, that when they put in the Stemmons Freeway sign, they didn't have it just right. So there's a discrepancy between where the sign should have been Mm -hmm. had it not been an altered film and where it actually is, which isn't. It, it, it's evidentially significant because of the indication of how extensively they had revised the film. But when the motorcade proceeded to the Stemmons Freeway entrance, they stopped again to make sure JFK was dead. And another uh, Secret Service agent got into the limousine. But that was the purpose of the second stop at the Stemmons Freeway sign. Larry Rivera has done the most brilliant job on this. And both he and I will be speaking, by the way, on Monday the 29th of this month, Memorial Day, 
during a special 100th birthday JFK observation that's going to be live screened beginning at 9 a.m. Pacific and running through 6 or 7 p.m. Pacific and all across country it'll be available. Go to jfkbirthday.com, jfkbirthday.com to check out the details. But it'll be very good speakers. Um, Bob McClellan, who worked at a law firm, uh, Joe Clark, who participated in not only playing the assassination, but also the cover-up, will be speaking. Rogers, Roger Stone, who published a book about uh, who killed Kennedy, the case against LBJ, where I endorse Roger's views. It's a completely brilliant book about Lyndon's, John, uh, Lyndon's role here was authored by Phil Nelson, entitled LBJ Mastermind of JFK's Assassination. What, what many don't understand is that Lyndon forced himself on the ticket in Los Angeles in 1960. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jack had already invited Stuart Symington of Missouri to be his running mate. Uh, and Bobby went by the Johnson suite to extend a pro forma invitation to Lyndon as powerful majority leader. They never imagined he would have any interest. Giving up, you know, a really powerful position for uh, one that's been described as uh, not worth a warm bucket of piss. That's the original. They change it to spit uh, for political correctness. But the fact is, he wasn't on their long list, much less their short. But Johnson jumped on it. Uh, threatened to expose that Jack had Addison's disease, wasn't expected to live a long, healthy life, that he'd cavorted with beautiful women, some of whom were East German spies, information provided to him by J. Edgar Hoover, who'd made a lifetime practice of blackmailing members of the Congress by having their sex dossiers on them. Interestingly, the mob had one on Edgar, with him in a compromising positions with his close personal friend Clyde Tolson, such mm-hmm. that until the Joe Valachi hearings, which detailed the existence of the mob in such detail and structure, was no longer politically possible to deny Hoover had never acknowledged the, even the existence of organized crime. So, the, and uh, corruption. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Lyndon played the key role. He even sent his chief administrative assistant, Cliff Carter, down to Dallas to make sure all the arrangements were in place for the assassination. One of Johnson's wealthy supporters burst into the suite hearing he was going to run with JFK, cursing and swearing because he was going to help to get Jack elected president. Bobby Baker took him into a bedroom and explained what they had in mind. He came out all smiles, said he thought that was an excellent plan. Bobby Baker would later announce publicly his prediction, JFK. K would not live out his term and that he would die a violent death, which, of course, they were in the works of planning. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's, but then I said, see, the mechanics, the facilitators, and, and the sponsors. The, the sponsors are the individuals and groups who wanted him out, primarily to get the policies of Lyndon in and Jack's out, including the CIA. Jack had threatened to shatter it into a thousand pieces. Right. The Joint Chiefs were upset because he had not invaded Cuba, contrary to their unanimous recommendation. He'd gone ahead and signed an above-ground test ban treaty with the Soviets, contrary to their unanimous opposition, and where now he was planning to pull up forces out of Vietnam, where they believed a stand had to be taken against the expansion of international godless communism. It wasn't true. Ho Chi Minh was another nationalist leader, like Fidel Castro, like Hugo Chavez, but any 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 effort that cuts down the profit margins of American corporations uh, that makes someone a communist automatically and puts them in the sights of the American military as an extension of profit making for the USA. Um, 
Uh, also, the anti-Castro Cubans were upset because they felt Jack had betrayed them at the Bay of Pigs. Actually, it made it clear from the beginning there must be no overt U.S. support, but the CIA allowed that impression to linger, so they wanted revenge. Uh, the, the Eastern establishment surrounding the Fed uh, were upset because he had circumvented the Fed. He instructed the Department of Treasury to print hundreds of millions of United States notes on the ground that it was absurd for the government to be paying interest to a consortium of private banks to print the currency of the U.S. I remember as a young Marine Corps officer holding one of these bills in my hand, which had a red embossed imprint that said United States note instead of green as a Federal Reserve note. But, of course, all this would come to an end with Lyndon in place. The uh, Texas oilmen were upset because he was threatening to cut their oil depletion allowance, a huge tax break, tax break they they got on the, the specious grounds that by pumping oil out of the ground they were putting themselves out of business. You know, any, any rationale will work if you're playing this power politics game. And Israel, Jack was actually at loggerheads with David Ben-Gurion, uh, among the founders and the first prime minister of Israel who wanted uh, Israel to develop nuclear weapons at Demona. Jack was utterly opposed to it. He felt it would set off an arms race in the Middle East. He wanted American inspectors. He wouldn't approve it. And uh, this appears to have caused David Ben-Gurion to resign as PM after instructing the Mossad to support the, his removal from office by force. So pretty much everybody had a reason to kill him. <laughs> we had a powerful arrangement for the sponsors, and then the key, the facilitators who made it all happen come together, where Lyndon Johnson and J. Edgar, where Lyndon, of course, arranged for the assassination, and Edgar was used to cover it up, where Lyndon would appoint the FBI to be the sole investigative authority. Mm-hmm. Bobby was basically locked out, because although he's attorney general, now he had Lyndon as a superior, uh, Hoover as his nominal subordinate, but they had the phone that Bobby had had put on Edgar's desk that he had to answer immediately was taken out. It was all very brutal. So he was essentially powerless. I do believe that it was his indication that if he were elected president, he would reopen an investigation into his brother's death that led to his being taken out at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. Uh, after winning the California primary, and uh, there appear to be inside players involved in leading him into the pantry. He was supposed to come out through the the ballroom, and he was set up. Uh, turns out uh, Thomas uh, Noguchi, who is a world-famous medical examiner, determined that uh, Bobby had been shot four times from behind, the fatal shot from an inch and a half behind his right ear. Sirhan was only in front, and while he unloaded his weapon, which held eight shots, as many as 14 were fired during the assassination, some of whom into the woodwork and so forth, which the LAPD would eventually take down and destroy on the grounds that it wouldn't fit into a 4x6 file card index. Jesus. Wow. It's so ridiculous. I can't believe So how many people were actually on the... Not to, like, go back to it, but how many people were actually on the ground in Dealey Plaza that were aware of what was about to happen? Quite quite a few people. They'd actually flooded the place. I got to know one of the participants in the assassination. He's the third of the so-called three tramps. He's not E. Howard Hunt, often misdescribed, but his name is Chauncey Marvin Holt. He had a very interesting career. He was born into a trapeze family. He was a 
very artistic, a painter, a forger, a counterfeiter. I've seen some of his paintings. I have a charcoal sketch he did of the changing of the guard. Uh, very good stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was working as a, he had worked with the mob. He was at one point Meyer Lansky's accountant. This is the most sensitive position in organized crime. Right. But at the, in the approaching 22 November 1963, he was working as a contract agent at the Los Angeles Stamp and Stationery Store. He'd explained to me how the CIA had all these assets with innocuous sounding names. It was an interesting building, about five floors. The bottom three were a legitimate business. The top two was where the CIA ran their ID operation. They made, for example, the Alec Heidel, identification that Lee Oswald had uh, when he was arrested and and from New Orleans. Uh, Interestingly, the bottom three floors were a manufacturer of police and sheriff identification, so if they needed to give uh, ID to a CIA operative, they could give him a real Mm -hmm. sheriff or police badge and not just a counterfeit one. But he was instructed by his handler, Philip Twombly, to prepare 15 sets of four Secret Service credentials to use in and around Dealey Plaza. He was worried he wouldn't get the color-coded pins, which changed from day to day for the Secret Service, but he got the information on time. When he arrived in uh, Dealey Plaza, he was to leave them in a red pickup truck parked behind the the grassy knoll, <coughs> which in fact is a parking lot used by the NY, uh, Dallas Police Department. But it wasn't there, so he wandered around Dealey Plaza. He told me he saw more bad guys, more mercenaries and assassins than you'd find at a Soldiers of Fortune convention. <laughs> So he went back, and the truck was there. He left the idea. He'd been instructed. With the other two, he joined up there. One he knew as Richard Montoya, whose actual name is Charles Rogers, who was the first of the three tramps, the shorter one, well-dressed, sometimes called Frenchy. And with Charles Harrelson, who actually is the father of Woody, who was a hitman for the mob, and who assassinated a federal judge because a drug dealer didn't want to be sentenced to the max. And the three of them were instructed to go down to the railroad yard behind Grassy Knoll where they'd find a boxcar that would appear to be locked but would be actually open. When they climbed inside, they found it was loaded with ammunition, explosives, and weapons. I, I believe now that they were the fallback patsies if Lee hadn't worked out, if they had taken out JFK and Dealey Plaza, that... Uh, they would have been those who would be charged. Mm-hmm. The train started to pull out, but Max Holland, who was supervising, thought something was funny, pulled it back, and the uh, police came and arrested them and then walked them through Dealey Plaza. But there were many oddities. They're not dressed like normal police, and there's a civilian who walks past them who's been identified as none other than Edward Lansdale, who was responsible for assassinations all over the world, especially in Vietnam, who many of us believe actually positioned the shooters and determined the sequence of shots that would be made, who was identified not only by his height, weight, build, and distinctive gait, but a ring he has, and the left hand and so forth, by no less authorities than L. Fletcher Prouty, who was a liaison between the CIA and the the Pentagon and the White House for covert operations and was sent to the South Pole because he was a straight shooter and would never put up with any of this, his expertise in security. He would have taken one look and knew that it was a setup, so they sent him out of the country. Uh, and uh, by uh, Victor Krulak, among the most celebrated of all Marine Corps generals of two Congressional Medals of Honor, he, 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 you know, uh, the, the, these 
unless I'm running him together with Smedley Butler, who is another wonderful mm-hmm. Marine Corps general who did get two Congressional Medals of Honor. Victor Krulak was just hugely admired in the Marine Corps. So you have two impeccable sources identifying Lansdale. We not only have that, but a photograph taken later of George H.W. Bush staying in front of the book depository, which I discovered in Jesse Curry, who'd been the chief of police in Dallas, JFK assassination file, which he published only in paperback, only available through 7-Eleven stores, where he went to be their head of security after retiring from Dallas. And a third photograph where you can see Edward Lansdale waiting to speak to George H.W. Bush. And as I mentioned before, he was even in the Daltech supervising the, the assassin who fight was the only unsilenced weapon, Manlicker Carcano. All the other were silenced. Other shots were taken from the grassy knoll, actually the easiest shot by a police officer by the name of Roscoe White, who was tied in with the CIA. But the angle would have hurt Jackie, and they ha- had strict instructions she should not be harmed. It wound up in the dirt on the opposite side of the road where a lieutenant picked it up and it disappeared forever. And then Lyndon's personal hitman, Malcolm Mac Wallace, was in the um, west side of the book depository on, I think, the fifth floor, firing at uh, John Conley in the mistaken belief that it was Ralph Yarborough, who was a liberal Texas senator that Lyndon despised. He he tried to get Conley out and Yarborough in, had a huge argument with JFK that morning. Well, where ultimately JFK overrode him on the ground that the chief executive of the state should ride with the chief executive of the United States, but it was too late to get words to, word to the shooters. And I think actually it worked to the benefit of the plot because it obfuscated the politics. No one would think that Lyndon Johnson would have been his close crony and campaign manager, John Conley, in harm's way. But, in fact, you look at photographs that morning, everyone seems very cheerful, except for John Conley, who's grimacing, and for good reason, because he knows something's going to happen. After the shooting took place, actually, he called out, my God, they're going to kill us all, after he'd actually been hit by a separate shot, by the way. This is very, very interesting. The FBI and the Secret Service, that day, concluded that there had been three shots with three hits, that Jack had been hit in the back, that five and a half inches below the collar of the right spinal, that Conley had been hit in the back, and that Jack had been hit in the back of the head, killing him. Uh, but when it turned out that this distant bystander by him and James Tagg had actually been injured by, by a fleck of concrete when the bullet hit the curb, they had to subtract one. They committed themselves to three shots. Now they had to count for every all the wounds by two, so they moved the description of the back wound up to the eventually base of the back of the neck. Gerald Ford actually did this. Claimed the bullet had entered the back of the neck, tra- traversed the neck without hitting any bony structures, and exited the throat to go into the back of Conley. Conley never bought it. He always insisted they'd been hit by separate shots, which, of course, they had. In fact, even the wounds in Jack were caused by different shots. Mm-hmm. For example, we have Malcolm Perry, who actually performed a simple straight-line incision in his throat who described a nice small puncture wound, obviously a wound of entry, to the press assembled at, at, at uh, a press conference held at 1.30 uh, Central Time, in which he explained three different times that the bullet had been coming at him, meaning a shot from in front. In fact, if you go back to NBC News, you know, see it now, for example, Chet Hutley and others reporting, the two wounds they described were the thro- small puncture wound to the throat and the major blowout to the back of the head that was caused by a shot that entered the right temple, a result they attribute a finding they attributed Admiral George Berkeley, the president's personal physician, 
who, by the way, had been placed in the last vehicle in the motorcade to make it maximally difficult for him to get to JFK should he need emergency medical attention, as well as his medical, his, his military aide, who would normally have been riding between Greer and Kellerman, the agent in charge, in the middle of the front seat, but they had to take him out to get the shot through the windshield into Jack. So, I mean, this was all very deviously planned, really complicated and fascinating. But Was Greer in on it? Oh, of course, okay. 100%. Yeah, just- he was the only guy who could actually have saved Jack by accelerating, just getting out. He, right. he was very much in on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, so was the Umbrella Man and the Babushka Lady any part of this, or is that all just part of the narrative? Well, I know the Babushka of- Lady was Beverly Oliver. She had a brand-new camera uh, and, and took what would be a very revealing footage. But before she'd even removed it from her camera, the FBI were on her and, and, and took it from her the following week. Uh, but, yeah, the, the umbrella man was there pumping. See, he was visible from all the shooting locations, so that as long as he's pumping, that means the target's still alive, keeps shooting. Plus there's a guy known as the, 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 um, the Cuban, Felipe de Santiago, who's out there shaking his fist, which was a symbol assigned to Greer to halt the limousine, where Roy Hargrave appears to have been the umbrella man. They, they, during the HSCA, the House Select Committee reinvestigation, 76-77, they brought in somebody who had nothing to do with this uh, by the name of Witt to pretend to be the umbrella man, and the umbrella they had didn't even have the same number of spokes as the umbrella <laughs> we had on the scene. and It was just a joke. In fact, they uh, they try to redo the cover up even better than the Warren Commission regard to the medical evidence. Believe it or not, not only did Jack originally have this fist size wound in the back of the head, which interestingly, as described by Clint Hill, and he's been consistent now for more than fifty years, made it into a book called The Kennedy Detail about what happened in Dallas about the Secret Service role, a sentence describing this bloody gaping hole in the back of his head, the size of your fist when you double it up, is in the Kennedy detail. Which means, amazingly enough, you know, already from the Kennedy detail, if you believe Clint Hill, and he seems to me to be an honest man, except that later he would be induced to say, oh yeah, there had only been three shots and they were all from behind, when his own testimony refuted that claim. You know, there had to have been shots from in front, and therefore, you know, multiple shooters. In fact, it's ironic, Bob Livingston, because his office was across the street from Bethesda, when he learned the autopsy would be conducted there, contacted the physician who would be uh, James Humes, a lieutenant commander who'd never done an autopsy on a gunshot victim before him. This is an absurd situation. The foremost pathetic forensic pathologists in the country were waiting by their phones for a call to come, which never, but it never rang. Uh, and he told him, when the officer of the, the day who knew Bob Livingston put him through, and that, and this is so ironic, that he'd heard on the radio about the description of the wound to the throat, and he may or may not have heard already about the second wound, but he was explained how, since this was clearly from in front, that the neck had to be dissected very carefully, and if there were any evidence of shots from behind, then that would be extremely important because it would be proof of a conspiracy. They were actually interrupted by the FBI. They interrupted this conversation between two physicians because they were getting too close to it. In other words, the FBI knew the job it had to do here. Yeah. Well, get this. When the, when, the, when the body, this is extremely interesting, 
the, the, the Secret Service forcibly took the body from Parkland Hospital by Texas law, uh, an inquest had to be conducted in Texas. The only crime that had been committed was murder. There were no laws against the, even the assassination of a president, vice president, or other high official. Those would come later. So the federal government didn't even have a legal claim to the body, but they forcibly removed, even brandishing their weapons, got the body in this bronze ceremonial casket onto Air Force One. Now, when Lyndon was being sworn in, which again was completely unnecessary, but and claimed that Bobby Kennedy had told him he should do it, which was totally made up. Right. He got everyone in the foreground, with the exception of, of, of one aide back by the casket. And at this point in time, the body was taken out of the ceremony, put into a body bag in a secret compartment in Air Force One. So when they landed at Andrews Air Force Base, and Jackie and Bobby were unloading the bronze ceremonial casket, the body was actually being offloaded on the other side in the body bag, put in a helicopter, flown to Walter Reed, where the best forensic pathologists were removing body fra- uh, bullet fragments it wouldn't do these shooters were using different calibers you know their their preferred weapons wouldn't have done to have two different calibers show up then they transported the body in a, a pinkish gray shipping casket in a black hearse to the back of Bethesda morgue where it was offloaded and the body was already undergoing uh, the autopsy uh, when the official entourage with Jackie and the Gray Navy Ambulance arrived in the beginning, for example, Gerald Custer, whom I met and who I've ha- had extensive uh, discussion with and where he annotated a report by the guy who was the acting radiologist showing practically where Custer actually took the x-rays, showing the, the uh, John Ebersol, who was the acting uh, radiologist, the normal radiology officer was sent off. I guess he, his loyalty couldn't be counted upon. Mm-hmm. But it was just loaded with red. I mean, practically everything Ebersol was reporting there was was false. I I included his uh, his testimony in uh, in one of the three books I would produce: Assassination Science, nineteen ninety eight, Murder in Dealey Plaza, two thousand, The Great Zapruder Film Hoax in nineteen ninety three. Because Custer was headed upstairs with X rays he'd already taken that were exposed but not yet developed in the company of Secret Service when he looked out the window. And wondered what in the world is going on because he was the Gray Navy ambulance Jackie coming in when the body was already undergoing autopsy. Now the key thing is this: because the fist-sized wound was such an obvious indication of a bullet from in front, Commander Humes actually took a cranial saw and enlarged the wound so it became the whole back of the head, well up into the top. But he did it in the presence of uh, two witnesses, uh, Thomas Evan Robinson, who had become the mortician who had prepared the body for the funeral, and another uh, tech there from the hospital witnessed it. Doug Horn was done brilliant work where he was a senior analyst for military records for the Assassination Records Review Board, a five-panel civilian board with the authority to declassify documents and records held by the CIA, the Secret Service, the NOI and all that across the board, the, the FBI, where only the president could override them. George Herbert Walker Bush, then president, of course, refused. He opposed the uh, legislation, but when it passed over his adamant opposition because of the surge of reinterest generated by Oliver Stone's film, mm-hmm. uh, he refused to appoint and it led to a delay of 18 months before the Clinton administration could come in and get organized, which, of course, was creating a time interval for all these agencies to clean up their records. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, they, they released some 60,000 documents and records, millions of pages, 
and some had been released even prior to my publication of Assassination Science, where I had the work of David Mantic, uh, Bob Livingston, Charles Crenshaw, and others, so that I was able to include a report that had appeared in the New York Times when the New York Times was still worth reading. It's now become such a conduit for propaganda, I refer to it as the Langley Newsletter, mm-hmm. that uh, Joe Ford had changed the description of the wound from the uppermost back, which was already an exaggeration, to the base of the back of the neck. David would eventually take a patient with similar chest and neck dimensions to JFK, create a CAT scan, and plot the official trajectory. And it turns out to not even be anatomically possible because cervical vertebrae intervene. So if you watch carefully, when you see some of these uh, reconstructions by ABC or Discovery or the History Channel, they use a stand-in that's missing a crucial anatomical feature. It has no backbone and therefore, of course, no cervical vertebrae in order to profess to have demonstrated that the trajectory was possible, which is simply absurd on its face. Uh, but ironic because the principal reason Jack was taken out was because he did have backbone. Wow. So now they've they've said, <clears throat> oh, wait, we've got the... Uh, they have to release these documents by October 26, 2017. What do you think? Like, Well, see, most of them, they, they were originally secured by the Warren Commission for 75 years. Right. Now, that approximate the average lifespan of an American. Basically, they didn't want them released while any American who lived through the experience was still around to explain that this isn't right, that this right. doesn't add up. But this assassination, JFK Assassination Records Act, preempted that so that most of those documents have already been released by the okay. Assassination Records Review Board. However, since you don't know how many were there to begin with, the fact that it released 60,000 documents didn't mean they got them all, and in fact we know they didn't right. because they kept back, for example, the file on George Joannidis, who is an expert on propaganda for the CIA, mm-hmm. who just happened to have been present along with Gordon Campbell and David Sanchez Morales at the Ambassador Hotel the night that Bobby was taken out, where there was collusion with the LAPD. So that when Yamaguchi's uh, autopsy report, which ought to have been the basis for any formal investigation, was presented because it conflicted with the LAPD report, Yoguchi was fired. I mean, this is absurd. Wow. This guy world famous, and they fired him because it's in conflict with the PD. You should have known something was terribly, terribly wrong. And, of course, it was yeah. suppressed, but it's now available. Okay. So there's... So there's some records that they're claiming they're going to be releasing in a short period of time. Right. And since these have been held back, they could be important, but it's also possible they've been so thoroughly sanitized by now right. that we're not going to gain any substantial new insights. That's, we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm thinking. They're probably, whatever is left, it's still going to try and tell their story. Yeah. That's not... Yeah, but it's ridiculous. I mean... Yeah. Anyone to this day who believes that Lee Oswald was the lone shooter it just hasn't been paying attention. You know, in fact, the CIA created this whole phrase, conspiracy theorists, in response to critics of the Warren Commission were pointing out, for example, that the backyard photographs, one of which appeared on the cover of Life magazine, where he appears to be holding a man liquor carcano. He's got a pistol belt with a revolver with which he's alleged to have shot J.D. Tippett, holding two communist newspapers. <laughs> Talk about putting the package together. Yeah, you know, yeah. Americans are so dumb. They thought this is the way we'll convince them that he's a communist, that he shot the policeman and JFK. 
by putting him together with the weapons. The fact that uh, J.D. Tippett, for example, was shot by uh, one or more automatics that ejected their cartridges uh, three times in the chest and then once in the right temple, interestingly, where Aquila Clemens, who was a witness, said two men had shot Tippett, and neither of them looked like Lee Oswald. Was that whole thing with Tippett, was that part of the plan? To Because wasn't that so far away, he couldn't have made it to that spot, I, I thought I read. Did well, he, 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 he could have made it to that location, but the fact is he was already at the Texas Theater when the shooting right. of Tippett took place. In fact, we have Butch Burroughs, who was selling him popcorn in the Texas Theater at about uh, 1.10, which is about the time that Tippett, who was, oh, I don't know, a mile and a half away, was shot. So, I mean, the whole thing was ridiculous. Well, they, yeah, the premises just get shot, but they're going to send all these people to the Texas Theater to get him. Because he walked in without a ticket. That's right. That's one yeah. of the many absurdities. Yeah. Actually, he'd bought his ticket. He'd bought and paid for his <laughs> ticket. Right. I mean, it's all ridiculous. They, they claim to have found a jacket he'd abandoned and a wallet, if you can believe. And yet he had another wallet. How many wallets do you carry? <laughs> one. You know, I always carry nine with me everywhere I just go. To, <laughs> just to be sure. I mean, this is yeah. so ludicrous. But, right. I mean, you know, he would... So, so, so here's the deal. The first officer on the scene took these shell casings and initialed them, and they'd come from automatics. Hmm. But at some point, they made a substitution in the weapons. And, and by the way, there were two and two. There were two Remington Ram and two Western cartridge. So two different makes, which already on his face suggested he had two shooters. Hmm. But then they replaced them, and now the shell casings are from a revolver, and they're three of one and one of the other, and they no longer have the initials. I mean, it's this blatant that they framed Lee. So when the critics started to point things out that there were so many uh, anomalies, the evidence didn't add up. The CIA put out a memorandum in 1964 about how to deal with critics of the Warren Commission and introduced this phrase, and so you're supposed to say they have nothing new, they're trying to gain attention, that uh, they're trying to make money, you know, all this other stuff. And, you know, you still get some of this today. Right. It's So... You're going to have a lot of that in this new book, the JFK, Who, How, and Why. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That should be out. It should be uh, being printed this week. Okay. Yeah. It'll so be out. Uh, I want it to be out before the 29th of Memorial Day, the 100th right. Observance. Right. Yeah, and it would right. be available at moonrockabooks.com. Right. Very good. Um, and that whole thing is... is How so many wild. times have you... This, this is re- really comprehensive because it includes, for example, proof... That Larry Rivera developed that confirms our previous conclusion that the man in the doorway who's peering out, who's the same height, weight, build, wearing the same clothing as Lee Oswald when he was arrested, mm-hmm. but where they seem to have messed with the face to make it look more like Bill Lee Lovelady, his co-worker, who said himself he thought it was odd they'd be confused because he was 2 to 3 inches shorter, 15 to 20 pounds heavier. And where the FBI actually had Billy in on the 29th of February, 1964, to wear the shirt he'd worn then. And he came in wearing a short sleeve red and white vertically striped shirt, which was a shirt he'd been wearing at the time. Looks nothing at all like Doorman. He's got a long sleeve, richly woven shirt. And it just makes it obvious to anyone who's familiar with the evidence, including photographs the FBI took, that this these are not the same person. And in fact... If you study carefully, as we have done dissecting, we now identified everyone in the doorway, for example. And Larry and, and, and Ralph Sinke have just done the most brilliant work on this. 
He's actually to the side of Lee. He's to Lee's left side. He's got his hands up to protect him for the sun, but they altered by, by blanking out his face, whitening out the shirt. So it would be so conspicuous. They've obfuscated another face. They put in a figure behind Lee, was overlapping his left shoulder, so that the man in the doorway, who's actually Lee Oswald, has no left shoulder. I mean, this is ridiculous. There are people who look at this photograph and say, oh, I don't see any evidence that's been altered. And I'd say, you do have eyes, do you not? And maybe we need to check your vision, because it's ridiculous. It's so blatant. But to have gone this far, Larry's now created GIFs. He did a lot of searching to find photographs of Billy and of Lee that would be suitable. And he created GIFs and fed them into the image we have from the auctions. And Lee fits Exactly. Billy, the ears are wrong, the jaw's wrong, the nose is wrong. I mean, it is Lee Oswald. So Larry's going to be presenting proof about Lee in the doorway on the 29th as part of the program. And uh, a guy named William Matson Law, who's interviewed a whole lot of the medical witnesses, is going to speak as well. Uh, Wayne Madsen's going to talk about Raphael Cruz. Mm. The uh, father uh, of uh, Ted uh, Cruz, uh, because, you know, the Don was attacked savagely, but the, what the Don said was true. Not only did we know Raphael was in, in New Orleans at the time and was an anti-Castro-Cuban, but he was there in front of the trademark when Lee Oswald was handing out this Fair Play for Cuba committee uh, flyers to, you know, sheep-dip him, create this false persona as a pro-Castro communist sympathizer mm-hmm. and... Uh, uh, so that when he would eventually be framed in Dallas, you know, they could cite all this as proof that, you know, Castro had done it. In fact, the two world leaders who were most distraught over this were Nikita Khrushchev and Fidel Castro, because actually a representative of JFK and of Fidel were meeting in Paris the very day Jack was taken out to try to rework, and Jack was trying to bring about a detente with Russia, for which Donald Trump today is being castigated. This whole Russian hacking meme, by the way, I must add now, was made up by Hillary Clinton's campaign staff within 24 hours of her concession speech. John Podesta and Robbie Moe called the communication staff together and introduced the script they had fabricated to blame this election on on uh, James Comey for getting to the email treasure trove, which was going to be hard to conceal mm-hmm. when the the six hundred fifty thousand new had come out, uh, but where he'd already gone through this laundry list of offenses and that uh, that Hillary had committed and absurdly said, but no reasonable prosecutor would pursue the case. About as ridiculous yeah. as claim as has been made yeah. in the, the whole course of this. But uh, now uh, we've been just sent in a wild goose chase. I've explained many different times that there was no no hacking, that, in fact, the DNC emails were leaked to Julian Assange by Seth Rich, who was the IT guy for the DNC. He was disillusioned by the sabotaging of Bernie Sanders' campaign and where he gave them to Craig Murray, who is a U.K. ambassador to Uzbekistan, an intel analyst and friend of Julian Assange, who gave them to Julian. And would you believe just today uh, a new story about how a private investigator working for the family has determined that Seth Rich was in touch with WikiLeaks, yeah, which just, confirms this story. Yeah, right today, believe it or yeah. not, confirms this story. Uh, so we know they went from Seth Rich to Craig Murray to Julian Assange, and while Julian, as a matter of formality, will never acknowledge his sources, he offered a $20,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction. Whoever was responsible for the death of Seth Rich, who was shot multiple times in the back, the D.C. police 
claimed that it was a robbery, but he had his wallet, his credit cards, his money, his watch. It was no robbery. And the explanation appears to be that the head of the D.C. police is deeply involved in Pizzagate. He's been covering up for Mm -hmm. it. He's never even investigated uh, Comet Ping Pong or Best of Pizza. So, you know, they're covering their ass many different ways here. Yeah, Yeah. which way to Sunday. Well, that Pizzagate thing is... Runs deep. Horrendous. In, Horrendous. Oh, At the Free Your Mind conference this year, I gave a presentation about uh, the use of doubles, you know, including uh, Lee, o- the, uh, identifying that Lee Oswald was not, uh, you know, the man in the doorway was Lee and not Billy Lovelady, about how one of the alleged victims at Sandy Hook was done, where they used photographs of his person alleged to be his older stepbrother to fabricate the character of Noah Posner, who never even existed, and then for Hillary's use of body doubles. I tell you, I have found so many body doubles. She even used a double during the debates with Bernie Sanders and with Donald Trump. Uh, we now believe that a report that was issued from three different sources the day of the 9-11 memorial where she collapsed saying that Hillary Clinton was dead, which they then retracted, were true, and they've been using doubles ever since. And any talk about Hillary running again in 2020, it ain't going to be her, I'll tell you. Not only this, but would you believe in, uh, I think it was in early February, there was a report in the New York Times about Hillary's in the house, where this reporter was citing that Hillary had come to four different plays on Broadway with photographs. And I wrote the guy who said, you know, that's a really interesting story, but that's not Hillary. And pointing out, have you even noticed that she wasn't accompanied by Secret Service, for example? But it wasn't Hillary. These were very different. The day of her collapse uh, at that 9-11 memorial, the staff was so concerned that anxiety in the public would grow about the state of her health that they sent out a double who was uh, uh, t- taller, thinner, actually, wait, two to three inches shorter, uh, 15 to 20 pounds minimally lighter, at least 10 years younger, very spry, very limber, very pleasant, most unlike Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I refer to her as the Meg Ryan double. <laughs> two days later on the flight to Greensboro, they had another double who was taller uh, and thinner, had a more sloped forehead, had the wrong nose, lacking the two moles Hillary has just above and below the right corner of her mouth. I refer to her as the, Meg, uh, the, as the Meryl Streep double because she looks so much like our nation's leading actress. But they've used multiple others the best during the debate. And it now appears they have a voice box in the throat that enables her to have the voice of Hillary Clinton without wow. being Hillary Clinton. Wow. I can't believe they go that far just for, just for her. All the all the marvels at work here. See, Donald represents such a threat to the establishment that you had both a Democratic, not only the DNC, but the Clinton machine working against him. You had the Republican elite and the Bush machine working against him and the mainstream media, which is dominated by the CIA. So that the Donald not only had to affect a hostile takeover of the Republican Party mm-hmm. and 16 other candidates, but win a war on three fronts against the Democrats, the Republicans, and the media. It was amazing he did. And that's why so many of us are so dismayed that since he's become president, he's done so many things that make it look as though he has betrayed his promises as a candidate. Uh, I mean, that's quite uh, a story in and of itself where... I discuss these things in detail regularly on my radio show, The Rod Deal, Tuesday, Thursday, from 8 to, to 10 Eastern Time on rentsradio.com and on a new show I'm doing called The Conspiracy Guy on prn.fm. That's a progressive radio network run by Gary Knoll from 
from 9 to 10 p.m. on Wednesdays, and then a whole lot of other interviews and shows I do. To, you know, this is all such current stuff and so complicated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's nice to talk to somebody that can, like, break it down. Yeah, like, yeah, well, you know, yeah. That gets it. You but know? without the talking heads at CNN. Right, that's what, that's, <laughs> that's what I'm trying to do. You know, take advantage of my background and abilities. I taught logic, critical thinking, and scientific reasoning for 35 years. And what I'm doing is just applying all those skills to dissect what's going on so the public can have some understanding of the extent to which they're being mis- deceived, misled, you know, uh, perpetrated frauds by that, the chemical attack in Syria. That was all rigged. I mean, yeah. the, 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 the the, the Russians had notified the U.S. based on their cooperation agreements they were going to hit that location. A change was made in the contacts. It was supposed to be in the in content. It was supposed to be ordinary munitions and weapons. So they dropped a bomb and turned out to be on chemical supplies, which created the impression of a chemical. T- it wasn't sarin. All that stuff about sarin was nonsense. You had these white helmets with bare hands. If it had been sarin, it would kill them just from having physical contact. It's such a deadly gas. All orchestrate, completely fake. In fact, they forgot that after a previous phony attack in 2013, the Russians had produced a 50-page dossier demonstrating that the rebels had been responsible, not Assad, and had negotiated with the United Nations a removal of all of Assad's chemical weapons and his capacity to create them under the supervision of the UN. So not only was this a, you know, a, a dumb thing to do and blatant if you understood the history of the case, but Assad didn't even have any chemical weapons. So what do they do? They say, oh, well, this is just proof that, you know, the, the Russians were lying about their removal, when in fact, the fact they'd been removed was proof this was a phony concocted event. Then the Donald responds with this missile attack. Only at that point does the media start to laud him and say, now we have a president yeah. of the United States. When he commits a war crime that indicates the United States is a rogue nation willing to violate international law, the UN Charter, and the war combat, that's when the media started to praise him. That's right. absolutely dumbfounding. Yeah. Speaking of uh, covering up a like a, a war type thing or something that will, could do that, let's talk about 9-11. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, I guess, give us your your uh, analysis of what actually happened. Well, to understand that. 9-11, you got to go back to a conference held in Jerusalem organized by Bibi Netanyahu on terrorism, where he published a book in 1987 entitled... Terrorism, how the West can win with essays by various experts when the concept wasn't even in the consciousness of anyone in the West. Uh, with the demise of the Soviet Union, uh, this uh, propaganda think tank called Project for a New American Century, which was just stacked with neocons, most of whom were dual U.S.-Israeli citizens, promoted the idea that if the United States would only move aggressively into the geopolitically sensitive region of the Middle East and exert military and diplomatic uh, influence outward that it would be possible to create a new American empire that would endure for the next 100 years. That was just camouflage. The whole idea was to set things up to draw the United States into wars in the Middle East to take out the modern Arab states that served as a counterbalance to Israel's domination of the region. That was the bottom line, clear and simple. Wesley Clark would eventually explain it all at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco in 2007 
which he had learned when he returned to the Pentagon after serving as uh, Supreme Commander Allied Forces Europe, meaning he was commanding general of NATO. And a general there had pulled him aside and, and said, uh, you know, explained to him that we were about to invade Iraq. And Clark said, why? He said, they had nothing to do with 9-11. And Joseph, I don't know. He said, I guess we're just good at it. <laughs> and Clark said, well, you keep me posted. And, you know, a few months later, he was back and ran to the same general. And he said, are we still planning to invade Iraq? And the general said, oh, no, sir, it's much worse. And he pulled him into his office and I've just received a memorandum from Secretary Rumsfeld that we're going to take out the governments of seven countries in the next five years, beginning with Iraq and Libya, ending with Syria and Iran. And, and Clark said, was that uh, memorandum classified? Oh, yes, sir. Well, then don't show it to me because I may want to talk about it, which you would eventually do six years later at the Commonwealth Club. Mm-hmm. But this whole idea was an elaborate plan to draw the United States in to do the dirty work for Israel. That's their stock in trade. You know, it's like the Bush family have the practice of other people's money. You know, they make lots of investments, but never with their own money, other people's money, so they can make money off of their money. The Israelis, like, let other people do it. The U.S. come and destroy our enemies at vast cost to them in their, the, the, the young people of their military forces and their national treasury. That's their modus operandi. So the the project for the new American century worried that Americans, you know, with the demise of the Soviet Union, wouldn't appreciate the unique historical opportunity. Unless, they actually wrote this, there were some traumatic catalyzing events such as a new Pearl Harbor. And they went about arranging these, these, the World Trade Centers were white elephants, they had low occupancy, they were loaded with asbestos, they couldn't be taken down by classic controlled demolition because it would have released all the asbestos particles and other biohazards into the atmosphere. It would have been prohibitively expensive to erect steel scaffolding around 110-story buildings. So isn't it convenient that they just happen to go down in these terrorist attacks? Well, Larry Silverstein, the private owner, only came into possession six weeks in advance. He fired the security firm that had been looking after the World Trade Center since 1970, installed an Israeli firm by the name of Kroll, negotiated a new insurance policy, including a terrorist clause. So because there were two planes, two attacks, he claimed double indemnity and pocketed over $4.5 billion on a $114 million investment. They don't call him Lucky Larry for nothing. He and his daughter, every morning we go to the top of the North Tower to Windows on the World Restaurant and have breakfast, but that day neither of them showed. He claimed he had a dermatological appointment arranged by his wife. Right. He also had one on Building 7, too, right? Yeah, yeah. That yeah. was a, that was a, a Silverstein problem. that wasn't even... That just collapsed because it... Well, that was a classic controlled demolition. That was an extremely robust building. It was erected over two massive electrical generators, providing electricity to lower Manhattan. Uh, Just to give you a contrast, in in the Twin Towers, they used massive steel beams, but they were hollowed out in the center, which give nearly the same degree of support. But in World Trade Center 7, they used solid steel beams. That, That was perhaps the most robust building ever designed by the hand of man. Uh, Very difficult to destroy. Uh, Barry Jennings from the New York Emergency Management was there because Rudy Giuliani had two floors for his command and control center, which had their own air and water supply. He went up there and 
and found half-eaten sandwiches still steaming coffee. A fireman came along and said, we've got to get you out of here. But while he was in there, explosions were going off. A stairwell was blown out from under him. At one point in the pitch blackness, he felt himself stepping over bodies. Couldn't see them, but he could feel them. When he got out, he was interviewed and reported all of this. Now, that was in the morning. The, the Building 7 would only go down seven hours after the Twin Towers had been destroyed, and it was a classic controlled demolition. You know, as all the supports were moved at the same time, all the floors falling at the same time, and leaving a, a classic pile of debris equal to about 12% of the height of the original 47, in this case about five and a half floors. Now, the Twin Towers are completely different. They're blowing apart from the top down in every direction. Uh, one uh, 300-ton steel assembly was actually thrown upward and outward some 600 feet into the the winter garden. I mean, this is uh, proof that this was no classic controlled demolition, no, no ordinary explosive, no directed energy weapons. Uh, the buildings being converted into millions of cubic yards of very fine dust. All the floors remain stationary. And when it's over, astonishingly enough, no stack of pancakes, no 12%. That would have been like 13 and a half floors. There was nothing there inside their footprint. I had Father Frank Morales from St. Mark's Episcopal Church, who'd been a first responder on my shows twice. I've had quite a few shows over the years. And he explained both times how those buildings had been destroyed two or even slightly below ground level. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite photographs from 9-11 is you're looking down from a perspective where you can see Building 7 and the pile of debris, five and a half floors in the foreground where Building 1 stood. There's nothing. There's nothing there. Right. Mm-hmm. So was it the, you, you've heard uh, Judy Wood's theory about 9-11? I must admit that I appear to have been responsible for making her her name a household word. I interviewed her for the first time on 11 November 2006. I was out in Tucson and was blown away by her broadening the scope of theorizing about how it had done by introducing the possibility of space-based or airborne or whatever directed energy weapons. That's when I said something like, wow. You know, many people, just like Howard Dean, when he got enthusiastic at that rally, they they backed out all the background to make it sound like he was kind of uh, hysterical when it all fit when you saw the actual context. To uh, Many of the 9-11 truthers were upset that I was uh, considering a wider range of theories than nanothermite in which I'd lost faith long since, at least by June when the American Scholars Conference organized by Alex Jones was held in Los Angeles where he invited me to give the keynote address. I had a conversation with Steve Jones in the lobby on Saturday and asked him, did he still believe that nanothermite could be responsible for blowing the buildings apart and converting the buildings into very fine dust and all? And he assured me, oh, yes, absolutely, absolutely. But it's nonsense. I would publish three articles with T. Mark Hightower, who's actually a chemical engineer, who went through all the scientific literature. It doesn't have the explosive capacity. One-thirteenth as powerful as TNT. Uh, one of the participants in the nanothermite story, uh, Niels Herrett, um, from... I think Niels is from Denmark anyway, estimated that if you use nanothermite, it would take uh, 29,000 metric tons of nanothermite oh, to blow apart one of the towers. I mean, now that's absurd. It's yeah. like filling the whole building with circus peanuts. Right. Yeah. It's just ludicrous. Yeah. So, you know, the, these guys, these were responsible for the, the f- fracture of Scholars for 9-11 Truth, when I, which I founded in December 2005. The recommendation of David Ray Griffin, I invited Steve Jones to be my co-chair. He, of course, was big on nanothermite. There are some of us who suspect that Steve actually knew a lot about nukes. 
may even have been involved in the planning. This is not something that is become a subject of discussion, but it may very well deserve that status because uh, his whole contact in all this has been very peculiar. And, you know, for him to keep hyping about nanothermite, which can't possibly have done the job. Mark Hightower and I would publish three articles together. Uh, one was entitled, Is the 9-11 Truth Based Upon a, a False Theory? You know, the use of nanothermite, which can't have done the job. Architects and engineers have continued to carry the nanothermite banner. They admit that something else could have been used. And I say... You know, to make it explosive. And I say, well, that's also true of toothpaste, you know. <laughs> toothpaste is not explosive, but you could combine it with explosive and make it explosive. But the question becomes, what is the other ingredient? Right. And Richard Gage and Annie never answer the question. Well, how many years have they had now? What is this? 2017, if I check my this happened in 2001. Yeah. And they've been telling us that something else may have been involved, but they can't tell us what it was. In fact, I've had the benefit of working with some really good people on 9-11, and it appears to have been done with a sophisticated arrangement of mini or micro nukes, which have a dialable radius of, for example, 100 feet. So that would be a 200-foot diameter for buildings 208 feet on a side. They can be directed upward. Uh, so you're going to get very much like the effect we saw here. If they're set off in a sequence from the top down to try to simulate a collapse when it's obviously no collapse at all, they've used the word so often, even Steve Jones keeps talking about a collapse, or Kevin Ryan talked about a collapse. There's no collapse. That's why this wasn't a classic controlled demolition. It was a demolition under control, but it was not a classic controlled demolition. And ironically, uh, these devices, which produce far more energy than conventional and can be directed, uh, satisfy Judy Wood's definition of directed energy weapon. Well, I not only interviewed her the first time on the 11th, but I interviewed her 15 times altogether. I, I pioneered the interaction between the computer as radio and going to a website. We'd go to a website, we'd start going through all this over the air. So anyone who had a computer could be at a website, too, and follow us going through this. 15 times I did this. <laughs> and when I organized the first conference by scholars in, in Madison in 2007, I gave Judy Wood an unprecedented three hours to speak. Now, I have done a lot of academic and scholarly conferences. No one has ever been given three hours to speak. I gave Judy Wood three hours to speak. And yet, in the end, the last interview I did with her, which, as I recall, would have been in maybe 2008, uh, she was on with uh, John Hutchins. Mm -hmm. And because John claims all these phenomenal discoveries, you know, that are in, like, the most technical area of physics and electromagnetism, you know, I asked him, John, I said, what, you know, what's your background in training? And he sloughed it off and said, well, he flunked crayons and coloring books, which Judy thought was hilarious. Well, I thought it was an obvious question, and I was rather dismayed, because apparently he doesn't have the technical background to making the discoveries he claims to have been making, which suggests that this whole thing may be fraudulent, which others have suggested as well, but Judy was so offended that she's cut off communication with me, even though when I organized the Vancouver hearings in 2012, I invited Judy to speak, and John. John actually had accepted until Judy got a hold of him and shut him down. So he didn't participate. But a whole lot of work by uh, 
Jeff Prager and by, uh, you know, Bill Ward and Bill Deagle and others on the use of nukes. Uh, what's presented there, the, the evidence, in my opinion, is simply overwhelming, including the U.S. Geological Survey's dust studies uh, of, of samples from 35 locations in Manhattan where they produced elements that would not have been present in their quantity and correlation had this not been a nuclear event. Uh, we also have the uh, anomalous medical problems uh, of first responders and citizens that, that are associated with exposure to ionizing radiation, including multiple myeloma, leukemia, esophageal, pancreatic cancer, a whole host that are very parallel to what occurred in Chernobyl. We also had Rudy Giuliani not only having 115 dump trucks lined up, the following day, I mean, I'm telling you, if I in New York wanted to arrange for a dump truck, it would make me a month to arrange for one. He had 115 the following day. What Judy noticed, I mean, she's made a lot of brilliant observations. What they were bringing in was just as important as what they were taking out. They were bringing in vast quantities of dirt so that, in fact, the debris pile was actually growing day after day for the first week or so, which is exactly what they did at Chernobyl. They brought in tons and tons of dirt to absorb the radioactive contamination. So, wow. Judy's guy had a lot of insights. I actually published a five-star review on Amazon.com before the Vancouver hearing, praising her book as bringing together the best repository of photographs and studies as evidence. But she doesn't address who was responsible or why. Neither does architects and engineers. And for that reason, I fault them. I call them out as limited hangouts. These are clearly ops that are intended to divert attention, make the public think something serious is going on when it is not. So the only place where you can find the whole story covered of how it was done, who was responsible and why, is America nuked on 9-11, compliments of the CIA, the neocons, and the DOD, and the Mossad, again, from Mm moonrockbooks.com, where I had like 15 contributors again. See, all these are collaborative works, like Mm -hmm. on Sandy Hook, a dozen contributors, six corridor retired PhD professors. So you're not just getting my opinion, you're getting the opinion of a dozen experts, or 15 experts, all making valuable contributions with respect to their areas of specialization in doing research brought together in a single source to create a semi-permanent documentation of what really happened for the public to understand their own history. Yeah, I, yeah, I was going to say, like, so speaking of like nukes and whatnot, um, the Pentagon. Now, if a plane flew into the Pentagon, wouldn't there be a tail or... Wings or something, right? Yeah, sure, of course. Yeah, the whole thing was fraudulent. Gerard Holmgren, uh, who is a blues musician from Australia, was the first to notice that Bureau of Transportation Statistics, which records every takeoff and landing of every flight, had no record for Flight 11 North Tower or Flight uh, Flight uh, 93 in, 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 no, 77 at the Pentagon. No record. Those planes weren't even in the air that day. Get this, pilots for 9-11 Truth did studies based on air ground communication and discovered that Flight 93 Shanksville was over Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, after it had purportedly crashed, and that Flight 175 was over Harrisburg and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, long after it had allegedly hit the South Tower. And I obtained FAA registration records showing that the planes used for those 
specific flights. Mind you, the same aircraft could be used for multiple flights now from Chicago to Atlanta tomorrow, you know, L.A. to Chicago and all that. We're not taken out of service or formally deregistered until 28 September 2005. So how can planes that weren't even in the air have crashed on 9-11? And how can planes that crashed on 9-11 have still been in the air four years later? As David Ray Griffin observes at the very first point of his magisterial, the 9-11 Commission report, omissions and distortions, half a dozen of these alleged suicide hijackers turned up alive and well the following day and made contact with the British media. You would hope the American public would be able to add two and two and recognize if these guys are alive, then they didn't die in plane crashes. And, of course, that's because none of those planes crashed on 9-11, not even in New York, though they were very sophisticated about how they faked it. Where uh, I have probably done, at this point in time, more research on this aspect of 9-11 than, than anyone else, so I'll be p- pleased to gr- grant pride a place to others. Uh, an excellent place to go, for example, if you want to understand the amount of proof that none of those four planes crashed on 9-11 is the real deal episode number, hashtag 100, uh, n- n- the 9-11 crash sites. Well, I spent two hours with Major General Albert Stubblebine, U.S. Army retired, who is formerly in charge of all U.S. military and signals, including photographic intelligence, who not only agreed with me about all four cases, but added additional reasons of his own how we knew that none of those planes crashed on 9-11. That's crazy. It That's is. wild. So how did they, can you go into a little bit of the, the sophistication of how they did the planes hitting the Twin Towers? Or Oh, yeah, sure. Let me add a few more words about the Pentagon because it's really an interesting case. I had an aeronautical engineer author a chapter for me that's in American Newt about the fact that aerodynamically, although the official account has this Boeing 757 at over 500 miles an hour skimming the ground and hitting the Pentagon, taking out lampposts in the process, that because of the laws of aerodynamics, including downdraft and ground effect, that plane could not have got closer than 60 or even 80 feet to the ground, where 80 feet is higher than the Pentagon is tall at 71 feet. So a whole official account is complete nonsense. Uh, one of my favorite photographs is these two civilian lime green fire trucks extinguishing the very modest fires at the Pentagon. But you're looking at the lawn, and it's completely free from debris. I constantly talk about you expect Tiger to show up to practice his putting. I mean, I was a big Tiger guy before he took himself out of the competition. And, you know, there's no debris for at least 20, 30, maybe even 40 minutes. It only starts showing up later. And I have multiple photographs showing no debris at all. In fact, you go to the hit point. It's only 10 feet high, 17 feet wide. There's a chain link fence. There are two automobiles, two enormous pools of cable, unbroken unbroken windows, no massive pile of debris from a 100-ton aluminum airliner, no bodies, no seats, no luggage, no wings, no tail. Not even the engines, which are virtually indestructible, were recovered. Now, today, I guess they had some 757 that was decommissioned. They claimed to have engines, but they didn't then. And it's all made up after the fact. Indeed, when the debris started showing up, it was very curious. My conjecture was it had been dropped from a C-130 that was circling the building because it had been too embarrassing or obvious to have enlisted men and officers carrying it out onto the lawn. There appears to have been some of that. The BBC came to my home 
here near Madison interviewed me for eight hours. Can you imagine how many arguments, how much evidence I pointed out in eight hours for the first conspiracy files program on 9-11? They used seven and a half minutes. Oh, my God. And what they focused on was my observation. It appeared to me that this debris had been dropped from the C-130. I guess they thought the public would find that most difficult to believe. They didn't go on to add that in the rubbish, in the what was dropped, there was a piece of fuselage from a 757. It's no doubt it's from a 757, but it's not crumpled, as you'd expect if it had been involved in a violent explosion. It shows no signs of being exposed to intense heat from these fireballs that also appear to have been made up for the five frames that were released by the Pentagon. But, moreover, entangled in this piece of fuselage is a section of vine not indigenous to the Arlington, Virginia area. And a retired attorney from Columbus, Ohio, by the name of Jim Hansom, actually tracked it back. This 757, very reliable aircraft, very few times has it ever gone down, to a crash near Cali, Columbia, 1995, where the pilots lost track and crashed through a jungle where these vines are in, in, you know, in abundance into the side of a mountain. Israelis bought all the crash debris, and, and, and a piece of it just happens to turn up on the Pentagon lawn. It's interesting. Wow. That's uh, yeah. It's 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 laughable. Their whole uh, official story. When you really like, but the sad thing is, people believe it still. But you know, I, that's what I don't understand. Is why do people still believe the stories? Yeah, they believe Lee Harvey. They leave, they believe that it was you know the terrorist for nine eleven. I think the explanation is American. Most American families they have a hard enough time. You know. Earning a wage, keeping food on the table, a roof over their head, and they take for granted. They get their news in, in sound bites, and if they get the same story from ABC and CNN and the New York Times, they think it must be true. Right. They don't have the ability, the inclination to do research. So the internet has proven to be a marvelous instrument if you know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I couldn't have done these collaborative books if it were not for the internet. You know, and people sharing the research and my putting together, taking the best of the best. For example, about Sandy Hook, Doctor. Ewan, who maintains the Fellowship of the Minds blog, which is simply excellent. I just put up a story of hers right now about South Rich, you know, and the increasing evidence uh, that he was, of course, taken out, which I'd been reporting for nearly, I don't know, six months, because he had leaked the DNC emails. Uh, Further confirmation, as I was mentioning, she had done 80 stories on Sandy Hook before I edited the book. 80. I myself had published 30. 30. Well, I don't have 80 stories in the whole book, so I would pick and choose, you know, the very best of the best about different aspects of Sandy Hook. But I tell you, that that book is so powerful and so blows the official gun out of the water that Amazon banned it less than one month after it was put on sale. It put it on sale on 22 October. It had been created by, put together by CreateSpace. It actually printed it for me, which is an Amazon subsidiary. Mm-hmm. And they took it off on 19 November, less than a month later, after selling nearly 500 copies. They could see it was going to be a bestseller. It blew the whole official account out of the water. Shows the school was closed by 2008. There were no students there. Uh, we, it was a FEMA exercise two days with a rehearsal on the 13th, going live on the 14th. We even have the manual. Yeah. I put it in the book. Anyone who wants to understand what happened there cannot do better. In fact, because it was banned the very day I was going on with Jeff Rents, I released the PDF for free. You can still get it at rents, rents.com. Go to rents.com and search for Nobody Died at Sandy Hook. You can download the PDF for the original edition, which was banned by Amazon. They never expected I would do that. 
in fact, I have a friend who follows these things and said, instead of selling six or 8,000 copies of the book, he said it's been downloaded millions of times. You can still download it. Now you can get the the expanded and revised version from moonrockbooks.com, but the original is available for free. And yeah, all the pictures in color. Initially, we were putting the book only in black and white. Now we have them both in black and white and in color for only $10 more. You can get them in color. And I set them all low because I wanted them to be accessible at only $20. Uh, you can get any of our books, even the JFK, which is 557 with over 1,000 photographs. For 20 bucks, you can get that book. Super value. Yeah. If you want the color, and it's believe me, it is worth the added $10, you want to get the color version. But, you know, you're going to get the basic story in black and white. There it's there for, for deliberately set at modest price to make it possible. So all the books are available at those same prices. Yeah. They, I mean, I got, I got most of them. Yeah, that's terrific. Waiting on the JFK. I love it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll tell you, going through and doing the copy editing, which is incredibly tedious, uh, I made a mistake here because I, I published so much of what is in the book. Mm-hmm. I took for granted it was ready for republication. We had the whole book set when my business guy, who was very good, realized this had to go through a thorough additional copy editing. We'll never make that mistake again. It was just me in the case of this book because of my familiarity with all the contents, but there are so many little tiny things I miss, which is delayed at being out in print, but I think the timing is still fortuitous in advance of the 29th and the 100th birthday. Wow. Let's let's take a break, and then we'll talk about Sandy Hook, Boston bombing, and so forth. Sure, that's fine. Awesome. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, Jim. So, Dave. Rye. Hell of an episode. Yeah, I... You and I did the most talking in the intro. <laughs> yeah, we did more talking in the intro than we did in the entire interview. Which is cool and good because finally I guessed... I mean, he just fucking... He gave us a break, basically. Yeah, we, we could have literally just turned on the microphones and went shopping for six hours. Is your mind scrambled? It still yeah. is, man. Dude, there's so much information. I, I, I don't know how he keeps it straight. I know he's been doing it for so long too, and he just rattles it out like he he just read it yesterday. You know, yeah. like it's literally like he's read us the books. Yeah, that he's written. Yeah, it's, uh, we have the books on tape now. <laughs> yeah, and, and and honestly, I'm sure there's way more in the oh, books because he was he was just hitting bullet points. Yeah, the, the most important even, parts. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of filler and fluff that we don't know about yeah. until we read the book. And I'd like to, I mean, I think we got our best JFK uh, roundabout there, like the whole yeah. thing. I'd like to do more on 9-11, and, uh, and there's a lot more stuff that we didn't, like we said, we didn't get to it, which mm-hmm. is good because next week we're doing round two with Jim yep. in studio again, uh, and we're doing Sandy Hook, Boston bombing, the Holocaust, and... A little bit on the moon. Uh, we brief, I, yeah, I think we touched it, uh, basically set it up for a future episode. Mm-hmm. We literally ran out of time, and... Uh, so that'll be in a future, and Jim has agreed to come back. So that's exciting as well. Yeah, um, super dope. But what I want to do for the listeners is if they, if so, you've they've heard today's episode, mm-hmm. 
And I'm sure they're like, got questions. They have to. I don't know how you could hear this and, and not come up with questions. So, and even Jim said, have people listen and then have them send questions and I'll come back and answer all of them. Yeah. Which is really cool. So this is a way you can do that. You yeah. can email thinktankpod at gmail.com with your questions. Just put in the subject line, Jim Fetzer or something like that, and then list your questions, and we will ask him next time he's here. He even said that uh, if there was something that we want, like the listeners wanted him to research and look into, yeah. he would do that also, and that's super cool. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's not like he's set on his own things, like, I'm only doing this. He was like, hey, I'll check anything out, man. I'm, I'm into finding out the truth for anything, and that's super cool. Right. Yeah, he'll definitely dig into it. So if you've got questions or something you want him to look into, uh, this is all stuff we'll, we'll bring to him next time he's mm-hmm. here. So definitely email thinktankpod at gmail.com. Uh, you can tweet at us at the think tank pod. Um, other than that, go to his website, moonrockbooks.com, buy his books. Yes, buy you his can, books and read them. You can go to his blog site. It's jamesfetzer.blogspot.com. Uh, he has another one. I think it's like Radio Fetzer or something like that. Let me look it up real quick just so we're not giving out the wrong information. He does his own podcast, by the way, called The Real Deal with Jim Fetzer. It's radiofetzer.blogspot.com. You can go there and listen to that. And our sponsors, one more time real quick. Uh, you can get some of his other books at uh, Amazon, but go to thearyman.com, click the Sponsor tab, takes you to Amazon, costs you nothing extra. They kick back a small percentage to us. Helps pay for the podcast. It's a win for Amazon, win for you, and a win for us. Can't beat it. It's a win-win-win. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a hat trick win. Also, phoenixbeardoils.com. Uh, go to the website. Find out why you should be using beard oils. All the fragrances and uh, all that good stuff. Right, Dave? Yeah, and also, it's not just... I mean, I, I should really change the name because it's not just beard oils. The oils are essential oils, so you can actually use the scents in diffusers uh, in your house if you want. If the ladies want to smell good in their house, they could do that. Um, so it's not just beard oils too. Right. You can put it anywhere, and if you have any essential oils, you can use the scents for that as well. Phoenix essential oils. It should just be Phoenix oils, really. Yeah, Phoenix but oils. I'm already set to beard right. oil, so. Well, and, and that's the initial thing. Yeah, that's beard, what I started so. with, and then I found yeah. out I could do more. Either work. way, go there, see what you've got. Order a bunch of shit. Yeah. In the uh, when you're checking out under the promo code D2R, and you're going to get ten percent off your entire order. So there you go. Why wouldn't you do it, right? Exactly. Um, other than that, next week, like I said, uh, Sandy Hook, Boston bombing, a little bit of the Holocaust, a titch on the moon, and uh, either way, it's more Jim Fetzer. So how can you go wrong? See you guys next week.
Podcast Network, brought to you by Dream to Reality Entertainment. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the D2R Podcast Network on iTunes. Give us a rating and leave us a comment. We'd really appreciate it. Your word of mouth is our only advertising, so please do us a solid. Share us with everyone you know. Thanks for listening.